So this is uh, hard to admit, hard to voice, but it needs to be said. I'm not sure I'm, I'm able to do this any longer. Not sure I'm cut out for this after all, this pastoring thing. Almost since I started, there's been conflicts. Many of you know that. Different people in the church who have different positions are elevating those things to be most important. They're teaching doctrines that aren't primary and sometimes not even biblical and speculating on things as if they were facts. Tired. And more than that, my youthfulness is starting to show. I'm young and inexperienced, and I'm not sure I can handle all this. To be honest, I'm ready to leave. I know that's probably not what you want to hear, but it's how I feel. Now, that's not autobiographical. At least not every part of that. That's something of the sentiment that seems to be behind the letter that we are open up this morning. The letter of 1 Timothy. It's Paul's letter to his pupil Timothy trying to encourage him and instruct him on how to be a pastor. A young pastor of a church in Ephesus. Now we do not have a statement from Timothy like the one I just fictionalized. But as you read through the book of 1 Timothy, which I encourage you to kind of read through the book in its entirety, at least once over the next few weeks, you'll see that, that the kinds of things that Paul addresses seem to be the kinds of things that Timothy has perhaps voiced. Struggles and concerns and discouragements and problems in the church. And Paul writes this letter to instruct Timothy and the church on how to live together. In fact, in chapter 3, verse, verses 14 and 15, Paul gives us the purpose for this letter. He says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Timothy and the people at the church in Ephesus in 65 AD needed to know these things. And we today, pastor and people at this church in Temple Hills in 2021 need to know these things. How to live together as a church. And so the, for the next couple of months, for about 11 sermons, we're gonna walk through this book together and study what it is to live together as the church of God. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy? The book of 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. It's past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then you get to 1 Timothy, right? If you haven't read 1 Timothy, feel free to consult the table of contents. And if you're visiting this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, Feel free to take the one under the chair as our gift to you. We want everyone to have their own copy of God's word. First Timothy, and this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 11 together. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Now, as we read through these first 11 verses of 1 Timothy, here's what I think is Paul's main point in this passage. So the main point of the sermon. False teaching and foolish thinking will kill a church, so must be rooted out. False teaching and foolish thinking will kill a church, and so they must be rooted out. And as we walk through this passage, I think we see Paul give Timothy, and by extension us, two charges in this passage. Number one, meditate and marvel at true things. And number two, stay and stand against false teaching. So number one, meditate and marvel at true things. We see that in verses one through two. And then number two, stay and stand against false teaching. We see that in verses three through 11. Number one, meditate and marvel at the truth, at true things. Now, maybe you're wondering what there is to meditate and marvel at early on. I mean, verses one and two, at first glance, seem rather boring and mundane. If you've read any of the New Testament letters, you've seen this format and these words used so often that it's easy to dismiss them as unimportant. But put yourself in Timothy's shoes. Ministry has beat you up a little. Your morale might be low. Your mentor and dear friend is distant. You haven't seen or heard from him in a while. And this is centuries before FaceTime and WhatsApp connect people across the globe in seconds. But then a letter comes from a courier. And as you open it, its words hit your weary soul like water to a parched tongue. Maybe you've experienced that in a season of trouble or trial, of spiritual dryness in your life. 
and you open up God's word. And the words almost instantly refresh and nourish you. Well, that's the intended effect here. Because though mundane and repetitive as these opening words may sound, they are God's words. All scripture, even greetings, are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for rebuke and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped, complete for every good work. Now, Timothy opens this letter and begins reading and is immediately greeted by a familiar friend, Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Now, some have wondered why Paul would start a personal letter to a friend with such a formal introduction. Indeed, some scholars are so smart that they've concluded that Paul must not be the author because of this super formal introduction to a friend. But it's important to note that though Timothy is the initial target audience, he's not the only target audience. The entire church is ultimately the wider audience of this letter. I think you see that even at the, the close of the letter. The, the, the last words in chapter 6, Paul concludes, Grace be with you. With the you there being plural. Grace be with all of you to the entire church. And so as such, it's entirely appropriate for Paul to include his title, his credentials up front. He is an apostle authorized by God to be his representative, his spokesman. spokesman. That title, apostle, is one of authority. It refers in its most normal usage in the New Testament to those men who Jesus has selected to be his witnesses to spread his message. One of the criteria to be an apostle was that one had to be an eyewitness to the risen Jesus. You see that in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. And, and notice here that nobody becomes an apostle of their own will or volition. You don't just jump up one day and decide, I'm going to be an apostle. You can't pay to enter a program. And after its completion, you get a diploma certifying you to be an apostle. Neither is apostleship a sort of final promotion once you've climbed the corporate clergy ladder. You start off as an elder. Then you become a pastor. Then you move up to a bishop. And then you get to be an overseer. And then finally, an apostle. For one, many of those terms are overlapping. An elder is a pastor, is a bishop, is an overseer. You can see that in passages like Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. And an apostle is a totally different office, instituted in a specific time in redemptive history for the initial spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church. But even then, one could not will himself to be an apostle. No, Paul says his apostleship came by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Paul has been given a special charge by the triune God to serve as one sent to declare his message. But you know, even as special 
a charge that Paul has from God, notice here that his office doesn't give him a special relationship with God that others can't have. Notice how Paul includes Timothy and indeed all fellow believers in his description of his relation to God, or rather God's relation to us. This God is our Savior, Timothy. Now, maybe you think of salvation as belonging solely to the second person of the Trinity, to God the Son. Jesus Christ is our Savior. That's true. But equally true is what Paul says here, that God the Father is our Savior. For one, the three persons of the Trinity all inseparably act in every act of redemption, of salvation. There's never a division of thought or purpose. Now, they may not all act in the same way, but they all act. So think about how the triune God has acted to save us. The Father sent the Son into the world to redeem us. The Son came and willingly sacrificed his life to accomplish our salvation. And the Spirit then applied Christ's work to us, effecting our salvation. You can legitimately say that Father, Son, and Spirit are Savior. But here, in focusing on the Father, whom the plain reference God often refers to in the Scriptures as our Savior, I think Paul means to widen the, widen the lens to see the long history of God's saving acts. We can't simply say that God is our Savior when Jesus came into the world. No, this testimony of God as Savior is one of old. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 106 recounts God's great saving acts to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Yet despite all this, he says in verse 21 there, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. The king Hezekiah, when threatened with Assyrian invasion, prayed in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, O God, save us from the Assyrian king's hand. And God saved them. From saving Noah from the flood to saving David from Saul to saving Israel from captivity in Egypt and exile in Babylon, God has shown himself to be a faithful savior for his people. And Paul says he continues to be. He's our savior. And as one saved by him, I've been charged to serve under him as an apostle and charged to write you, Timothy. But notice Paul also points Timothy to observe Christ Jesus as our hope. And notice three times in the first two verses, Paul refers to Jesus as Christ Jesus. The highlight is on Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the long-awaited anointed one, promised throughout the entire Old Testament to ultimately save God's people and to usher them into an eternal kingdom. He did that by his death and resurrection. And having ascended into heaven in glory is the hope for our future glory. Jesus' journey, death, resurrection, glory, will be our journey. He is our hope 
In him we can have certain or be certain of a glorious future. For he has promised to come back and to give us the same fate. Yes, we will die, but we will be raised, and we will be raised with him in glory. And so Paul begins this letter. Yes, asserting his apostleship, but more making assertions about God, who the Father and the Son are for us. And by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, calling Timothy and us to meditate and marvel at them. And then moving into verse 2, he, he formally addresses Timothy as the recipient of this letter. And then he adds a personal note. Uh, who is Timothy to Paul? My true child or son in the faith. A true in the sense of genuine. Uh, Paul cared for Timothy. A distance hadn't changed that. He valued him like a son. That terminology there, a child in the faith. It could mean that Paul actually led Timothy to Jesus or that he was the one who nurtured his faith and built him up. Now, regardless, what's obvious is that Paul had a major impact on Timothy's spiritual development. And in the common faith they shared, he considered him family. Isn't it wonderful to consider that in Christ, your family tree is broadened? You don't just have blood relatives. You gain spiritual relatives in a bond that's far deeper than physical ones. You know, in our congregation, I'm aware that several of you have struggled with infertility. And I don't mean in any way to, to minimize your good and godly desires to have physical children. We're praying with you that God would grant the desires of your heart in that area. But you know, I'm so encouraged that many of you, while praying and waiting for God to provide sons and daughters in the flesh, are working to produce sons and daughters in the faith. You're evangelizing unbelievers. You're discipling young believers. You're building up your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God for you and for this awesome opportunity that we all have to participate in this eternal life producing work. To the young people here, to the children in our congregation, I hope you have a sense of the depth of your parents' love for you. You know, when you're young, when you're a child, it's really hard to, to understand the depth of your parents' love for you, how much they care for you. But I hope you understand that more than their love for you as the children that God's physically given them, this is what all of us parents here are really after. This is the testimony that we all truly desire, that one day we can call you true children in the faith. Don't be content with simply the physical relationship with your parents and the temporal benefits that are yours through that relationship. Strive to have a spiritual relationship with your parents that you might have the eternal benefits of forgiveness of sins and fellowship with Christ through him. Turn from your sins today and put your faith in the same Jesus as them, that you might be united in a deeper, far more satisfying bond. Paul reminds Timothy of the benefits that he has with Paul in belonging to this spiritual family. He says in verse 2 that grace and mercy and peace are yours from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. A grace, 
the unmerited, or better, the contra-merited favor of God is on you. What you and I all actually merit, what we actually deserve is eternal death in hell because we've all sinned against God. But God has responded to our sins, not in ultimate judgment, but in grace, giving us what we do not deserve, eternal life through Christ, who gave his life and died in our place for our sins and rose again that we might be saved. And not because of works we've done, but solely because of his grace. By grace, you have been saved. Not only that, but mercy is yours from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Mercy finds its root in the Old Testament concept of God's covenant love for his people. His hased, his loving kindness to his people because he's covenanted himself to be their God. As such, God draws near to show pity and compassion to the people in their time of need. And peace is yours. The true peace. And not simply the pleasant but short-lived peace that you might enjoy on a quiet afternoon home without the kids. Or on a beach somewhere as the waves ripple against the shore. But peace with God. And to understand how stunning this peace is, we need to understand how deep the discord was. All of us come out the womb sinners rebelling against God. We are haters of God, Romans 1.30, and enemies of him, Romans 5.10. But having been justified by grace, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. God has poured out all his anger and wrath against his son instead of us. Jesus Christ has appeased God's anger so that there's no longer any animosity or hatred between God or us, but a rather perfect peace. How these verses must have helped Timothy. He was a man much like us, not a man removed from life's problems. He was surrounded by conflict and challenges. But amidst life's problems, he needs to be reminded of God's great provision. Grace is yours in him. Mercy is yours from him. And everlasting peace is yours with him. That's not only true of Timothy. That's true for all of us who are Christians. And in a world full of so many falsehoods, of so many false narratives, what we first and foremost need to focus on is the truth, which is where Paul leads Timothy here early on. Meditate on and marvel at what's true, Timothy, who I am to you and who you are to me, but much more who we are in Christ and what we have in him and the Father. With this groundwork in place, Paul is ready now to launch Timothy on his mission, which leads to point number two, the charge to stand or stay and stand against false teaching. Point number two, stay and stand against false teaching. Look at verses three and four. We read, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus 
so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul reminds Timothy of an earlier charge he'd given him. We don't know the exact timeline of when this was. When Paul left to go to, to Macedonia, this coastal city in Greece, and left Timothy in Ephesus, this major metropolitan city in Asia Minor, it doesn't seem to fit any of the accounts we see in the book of Acts. And there we do see Paul going to Macedonia, but, but Timothy goes with him there. So this account seems to be sometime later than, than what we read about in the, in the book of Acts. In, in any case, what we do see is that Paul loves Timothy. And, and though he loves Timothy as a true child of the faith, he leaves him in Ephesus. Why? Because of his love for the church. Paul's charge for Timothy to linger at Ephesus was out of his love for the church at Ephesus. You see, Paul wasn't simply about the rapid multiplication of churches. He didn't care so much about numbers. I planted 50 churches in 52 weeks last year. That's how some mission agencies and missionaries measure success today. No, Paul cared about the health of those churches. So if you just read through the book of Acts, you see that. Now, often we focus on Paul's great church planting efforts as we read through that book. He risked his life to go proclaim the gospel in some place that had never been proclaimed before and established a church. But we pay less attention to those accounts in Acts where Paul goes back through some of the same territories, risking his life again to build up those established churches. So consider the passage in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 22. Paul is nearly stoned to death at Lystra. I mean, they pelted him with rocks for preaching the gospel. And so, like any sane man, he leaves. And he goes to a different place, a place called Derby, where he again preaches the gospel and makes disciples. But then he returns to the place where he just got stoned, to Lystra, to, the text tells us, strengthen the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue on in the faith. Paul cared about the ongoing growth of the church, so much so that he put himself in dangerous and uncomfortable circumstances to see to his health. And here, Paul instructs his protege, and by extension us, to adopt the apostles' attitude. Yes, Ephesus has issues, but stay there and fix them. That's quite instructive for us, isn't it? Because problems often provoke us to running away from them. Rather than deal with difficult people or situations, we'd rather run from them. Search for better alternatives, a greener grass on the proverbial other side. But have you noticed that you can hop around all you want, but hard stuff happens everywhere you go? Mess moves around. Better sometimes to stay with the mess you know than move to the mess you don't know. Perhaps Timothy was ready to jump ship, was ready to come join Paul back on the mission field. 
Maybe he was tired of the task he'd been called to, had grown weary and frustrated, wasn't seeing any visible fruit. Instead, things just seemed to be getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, what's Paul's instruction, though? As I urged you before, so I urge you now. Remain at Ephesus. I wonder if some of us need to hear that this morning, that charge. You know, we want to be a church that helps start new gospel work elsewhere. We want to see other gospel preaching churches built up, planted, and revitalized in PG County and in the DMV and in the U.S. and around the world. And at times, that might mean us sending some of our best people to go and start or help with that work. That's good work. That's exciting work. That's necessary work. But perhaps less emotionally exciting. But just as necessary is for some to remain, to stay, to stay to promote and sustain a healthy culture of healthy teaching and living according to the Bible's prescriptions for what we should believe and how we should live. What is needed is for some to stay to shut down people who don't want to adhere to the Bible's teachings and standards for living. And we see that here. Uh, Timothy is to stay for a purpose. You see that purpose statement there in, in verse 3. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. You know, false teaching is not a new thing. It's as old as the Garden of Eden when Satan showed up teaching something other than what God had said. And throughout the centuries, it's reared its ugly head, plaguing the first century church in Ephesus to the 21st century church in America. A certain persons have risen up in the church. It only takes a few. And have begun belting out their beliefs, which are contrary to the Bible's beliefs. You notice here, for, for there to be a different doctrine that must be opposed, it implies that there's a standard doctrine, a standard set of teachings that must be believed. And anything contrary to those teachings fall in this different category. Now, different might be desirable when it comes to food choices. A different might be a compliment when it comes to a unique skill set. But different, when it comes to doctrine, is damnable. Amen. There ain't a bunch of different doctrines that we can all believe, each holding the same weight. No, there's one set of teachings taken from the scriptures revolving around the gospel that must be believed by all people. Amen. Jude 3 says there's one faith, one set of beliefs that was once for all time delivered to the saints. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, I deliver to you as of first importance, what I also received. There ain't no new teaching or different teaching that we need. As the old gospel song exclaimed, give me that old time religion. And that's good enough for me. That standard set of teachings given by God to the church and preserved for centuries for us to cherish and obey. We find it in the scriptures. Which is why, as a church, we've committed to submit to the authority of the scriptures. 
as our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And anything that doesn't adhere to the scriptures is therefore different and must be denied. Now that smacks against much of the relativism of our day, doesn't it? The modern mantra is your truth is your truth. And it's wrong, narrow-minded, intolerant for you to reject or shut people down, shut someone else's truth off simply because you don't agree with it. But what if God, the standard of truth, whose word is truth, what if God doesn't agree with it? And what if he charges us, as he does through Paul here, to close the lips of those who speak some other thing as truth, which is not true? This then becomes our task, right? To command those speaking such falsehood, proclaiming some different doctrine to stop for their own sake and for the sake of the church. So friends, let, let me be clear. If I ever start teaching you some different doctrine, if I start teaching you that salvation is found in some way other than faith alone and Christ alone, if I start teaching you that immoral living is okay in light of individual choice or freedom, let me be clear, you are not to tolerate that kind of teaching. But you are out of care for my soul and the health of this church. Charge me to stop, and if I don't, fire me. But you know, that goes both ways. If you start teaching or promoting some beliefs or lifestyles, other than those laid out in the scriptures, then you should expect me and your brothers and sisters here to confront you and to charge you to stop for the sake of your souls and for the sake of the health of this church. Because you know, it's, it's not just false teaching that can destroy your church and must be confronted. It's foolish thinking and aimless conversations as well. And notice here, Paul clues us into some elements of this different doctrine that people are holding to. In verse 4, he charges Timothy to also charge people not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, not to spend their time soaking their minds in things that don't really matter. Things like myths, legends, fables, untrue things but that folks are holding on to and adhering to as if they are true. Now, Paul doesn't spell out the exact myths that people are believing, but it's clear that these stories or teachings weren't found in the scriptures, weren't grounded in the truth. And so one should not spend their time investigating or following them. Now, this is just a side note here, but I think this has some implications for the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection of Christ. You know, many skeptics and atheists in our day have long held that Jesus' early followers invented the story of his resurrection and spread it to others, and it just sort of caught on like wildfire. But, but friends, Paul's statement here shows that he had no room no desire for him or anyone else to spend any time devoting themselves 
to something that was made up, to something that was not true. I mean, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The apostles were not about propagating falsehoods. They passed on and passed down what they had seen and what they knew to be reliable information. They had no time for myths. But what about us? Can we say the same? And today, consider Christians and conspiracy theories. Modern day myths that too many folks have spent countless hours investigating, reading about, searching online, watching YouTube clips, and on and on and on. Wanting to know what's really going on with the origins of COVID. What they really doing with these vaccines? What really happened on 9-11? Uh, where are the UFOs at? Who, who really killed Kennedy? <laughs> we can get too fascinated and enamored with things that are not tethered to absolute truth. Amen. Friends, God has given us our minds to love him with. Love the Lord with all your minds. He has not given us our minds to mull over myths and tales and fake news and propaganda and alternative facts. We have access to the truth. We should be the last people then lingering on untrue things. The same goes with genealogies, Paul says in, in verse 4. He charges Timothy to tell people not to devote themselves to endless genealogies referring probably to lists of Old Testament characters whom people either fabricated stories about, holding them up as heroes, or found some value in their supposed relation to these characters in a family tree. You see it today in some false doctrines and ideologies. Uh, religions, people placing an inordinate amount of value and being from a particular Old Testament tribe or in this particular clan or line. And for what? The only line that means anything ultimately is the one that leads to Christ. And you become part of that family tree, not by physical birth, but by spiritual birth. So what's devoting yourself to studying all these kinds of genealogies doing for you? You, you see, that's the problem with all this teaching and devotion to myths and genealogies. It doesn't produce anything. You see that in verse four, right? All it does is promote more and more and more speculation. You go on and on and on and on and on and never come to a knowledge of the truth. It just creates more controversies and more questions and more research that never yields any true and satisfying results. And in the meantime, it keeps you away from the things you should be giving yourself to. Being a faithful steward of the gospel truths that God has entrusted us to share. Focusing on other things keeps us from furthering God's thing and draws us into falling into falsehood. I think we see here one way that, that false teaching infiltrates the church. It's not always that it, it starts off as a frontal assault against the truth. 
but a growing disinterest in the truth and learning and studying the truth of God's word and talking about the truth and a growing desire in the opposite way to learn and talk about things that don't really hold any eternal significant value. So saints, consider what you've been giving your time and mind and speech to lately. What have you devoted yourself to? And ask yourself, what is that producing? Perhaps today you need to settle in your mind that you will not chase down all the clickbait ads and headlines promising to tell you the real story behind such and such. That you won't engage in heated discussions about topics that you have to admit you're really only speculating about and that will only lead to more speculating. Perhaps today you need to redevote yourself to being a student and faithful steward of the gospel. Commit to spending the bulk of your time spending and speaking, uh, studying and speaking about it. And if you need a model, look at Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul said, I came to Corinth and I pretended to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Because only that news, only the meditation on the gospel produces or promises to produce good fruit. You see that in verse 5. As Paul reminds Timothy that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What we're after is not winning arguments. What we're after is not debate for the sake of debates. What we're after is something altogether better, something that God is after. Love. Love. A man once asked Jesus in, in the Gospel of Matthew, what was the greatest commandment? Jesus responded quickly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul here is just doubling down on that. Love is the goal of our instruction, of our correction, of our conversations. That was one of the faults of the false teacher's teachings. It had nothing to do with love. It only promoted disputes and controversy, conflicts. But friends, what true teaching produces, the true teaching of the gospel is a deep-rooted love. And notice here, this love is not merely an outward expression or emotion. It must come from within from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. But no heart is naturally pure. No conscience is naturally good. No true faith is naturally present. No, they are all fruits of conversion, where a new heart is given that's been cleansed of sin, and a conscience that is undefiled by guilt and a faith that is not muddied with double-mindedness or hypocrisy, but is sincere and genuine. And so Timothy and the church are instructed to keep at the forefront of their minds what ministry is for, internal transformation that externally manifests itself in love. 
even in correcting these false teachers. Timothy is to keep this in mind. The objective isn't simply to shame these people or to roast them so that Timothy can be praised for being bold and taking charge. You know, sometimes we can do the right thing for the wrong motives. No, the goal is to produce even in them a love, not for endless disputes, but for the Lord and the people he's created in his image. So saints, what are you aiming for when you share thoughts on social media? When you engage in discussions with other members? When you speak with unbelievers? When you instruct your children? Are you aiming for love? If so, then how might that change the main content of our conversations? If you're trying to produce orange juice, you don't use vinegar. It'll produce something sour, not sweet. Well, if you're trying to produce love, you don't use the most loaded, undefined terms. You don't use the most heated rhetoric. You don't use the talking points of the talking heads on the news networks. If you're aiming for conflict, then yes, use those. But if you're aiming for love, then load your lips with the gospel, with the good news about Jesus Christ that transforms hearts and consciences and beliefs and brings about a love for God and for people, where once there was only a love for self and for strife. Paul returns to these false teachers in verse 6 and says they have no concern for these interchanges and the love that springs from them. Instead, they've wandered into more and more and more empty discussions. Vain discussions that, again, produce absolutely nothing. And then in verse 7, he gives another aspect of their teaching. Not only do they give their time to myths and genealogies, but they're teaching a wrong view of adherence to the Old Testament law as well. We'll see later in this book, they also insist on asceticism from good things that God has created. I mean, you notice how false teaching almost always has jumbled up beliefs? A little law, a little mythical stuff, a little historical stuff, a little ethical stuff, all jumbled together to make you think they're deep. No, it's really just dumb. And Paul says they desire to be teachers of the law, but they lack understanding about what they are saying, and yet, no need for that to stop them. They still make confident assertions about these things. Do you know what that makes them? Fools. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. They teach what they think they know about the law, but their teaching is way off. But Paul says in verse 8, we know, we know that the law is good. So Paul's not denying the law here, but notice the condition. It's only good if one uses it rightly. That is, there's a legitimate and an illegitimate way to use the law. And that goes with all the scriptures. Just because somebody got a few verses in their repertoire don't mean they're using those verses the right way. Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses use the scriptures to deny the deity of Christ. Prosperity preachers use the scriptures to feed the desires of their flesh. Both of them got texts. 
They just take them out of context and use them for the wrong purposes. It's the same with the law. If you use the law, as these false teachers were, to teach a way to gain your righteousness, to adhere to, to prove your spiritual maturity, then you've used it in the incorrect way. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is, the law is not a tool for you to use to work your way to heaven. The law shows us God's absolute holy standard and character and reveals how absolutely sinful we are in light of it. It shows that we can't keep it. The law is meant to lead us instead to Christ. So I need of a savior to do what we could not do, to perfectly keep all of God's commands, and then to give his life for us as lawbreakers. And we see that here in verse 9. And Paul says the law isn't laid down for the just, for the righteous, as a means of attaining or keeping our righteousness. No, the law is for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And in case you're wondering, that is describing all of us in our natural state. And then notice here, this, this incredible thing here, how Paul just shows how the law exposes specific sins. And watch how he ties them to specific prohibitions laid out in the Ten Commandments. So look towards the end of verse 9. He says, the law is for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. The law shows us how wicked that act actually is. The fifth commandment tells us that we are to honor our fathers and mothers. How opposite from the will of God is it then when we hate and hit them? The law, Paul says, to close verse 9, is for murderers. It exposes how direct a violation that is of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The law, verse 10, is for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality. It reveals rebellion against the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery and expands it to show the human heart engages in all kinds of sexual sin. And see there the explicit reference that homosexuality is a sin in God's eyes. No matter what the world says, it's not something to be celebrated and rewarded for, but to be repented of. But lest you sit perched atop your throne throwing darts at homosexuality as a sin, friends, so is pornography. So is fornication. The law condemns all sexual immorality. And next, Paul says the law is for enslavers, literally man-stealers. No matter how historians try to clean up America's past, we need to call the institution of slavery in America what it is, sin, and call those who owned and held slaves in this country, country what they were, participating in sin from those who took them captive, to those who sold them into slavery, to those who traded them, to those who purchased slaves. They were all involved in this act of man-stealing, which the law explicitly prohibits. The Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. They weren't just talking about candy bars, but human beings as well. 
And then Paul says the law is for liars and perjurers. Showing how these acts are in direct conflict with the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. And it's not to be exhaustive with this list. He says that the law reveals the sinfulness of anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. And what is this sound doctrine? Well, look at verse 11. It's the gospel of the glory of the blessed or the happy God and the actions and the attitudes and behaviors that are in accord with it. And these false teachers have given their time to instructing people to live by the law in order to live a righteous life. But Paul points them to the law's right use to show that you cannot live by it. But notice where he lands, where the law should land, at the gospel. Only the gospel produces a righteous life, one that believes the truth and one that behaves by the truth. Ultimately, false teaching must not only be negated, but rooted out by a better teaching, by a better doctrine, by better news, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done. The law can't change you, but it leads you to one that can, the Lord Jesus, who died for all the sins listed in verses 9 and 10 and died for all those who practice such sins. He died for us, and he rose again that those of us who trust in him might live forever for him. And part of living for him means living for the truth, living in the truth, and laying out our lives to stop the spread of lies and falsehoods and to promote the truth. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to do here. And it's what he's calling all of us to do, to hold to his unchanging word and to build our lives around it for the sake of our souls and for the sake of the health of his church. May he grant us all joy and strength and grace fitting for this glorious task. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is true, that points us to you as the absolute standard of truth. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from falsehoods and point us to the truth of the gospel, that in Christ you love us, that you send him who gave his life for us that we might be saved. Lord, make Christ our only hope and our only boast. Lord, we pray that as we close our time, Lord, that we would look to him for assurance of salvation. Lord, those who don't know you, we pray they would find it in him even now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.